Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. Well, if I can have uh, somebody real quick just come up here, need a volunteer, just somebody come up, might help me out. You're going to be getting some instructions from the congregation. Anybody else? I'll choose somebody if I don't get anybody. <laughs> choose somebody. All right, come on up, Dan. Up, there's, come on up. There were two of you were li- right in line. Come on up. Um, so your name is? Josh. Josh? I met you last week, didn't I? Yeah, I don't know. I, I've got a, I get all these unknown calls. Okay. Point what, uh, good to see you, Josh. Um, hey, so I want you to help Josh out here. Uh, I got a vase right here. And what I would like for Josh to do is to completely empty this vase of all of the air that's in it. So anybody's got suggestions for how Josh, are your lungs like really good? Are your lungs really like strong and powerful like to suck the air out of that thing? Yeah, I'm still breathing. Yep, he says says he's good to go. Um, Any suggestions for Josh to somehow... Get all of the air out of this vase. Come on. Did you all hear that? You're supposed to guess a little bit. Uh, You're supposed to have some wrong answers. You're supposed to wrestle a little bit. You're an engineer, aren't you? You're kind of an engineer dude. Yeah, so we got an engineer dude. Uh, Man, engineers like drive you nuts. Uh, But actually, he's right on target. His first, like... Did you wrestle with that a little bit? Like, how is Josh going to do that? How's Josh going to create a vacuum in there? The, the actual way to get, and I got something here for you, Josh. The actual way to get the air out of the jar is, Josh, if you could actually pour that water into the vase. And I might have more water in the jar than fits in the vase, so like... Yeah, fill it up. Fill it up to the top, man. All the way. There you go. Keep on going. All right, she's there. That's good. Way to go. Thanks, Josh. Give Josh a hand. Thank you. Just be seated again. So, yeah, the, the way to, to get all of the air out of that vase, you might not think of it right off the bat, but the way to do that is actually to fill the vase with something else. You could get all kinds of machinery and try to draw a vacuum and the thing would squash. You could try all kinds of other ideas, but it's actually fairly simple, maybe not necessarily easy, but simple to get the air out of that vase by filling it with water and having the water push the air out. That, in many ways, is an incredibly helpful illustration of how we as followers of Jesus change. We often talk about we're transformed by I'm to know, okay, how does that actually work? 
And if you're anything like me, you probably also have a little bit of maybe frustration. Why doesn't transformation happen more quickly in my life? Why don't we see that in each other's lives a little bit more clearly? Well, the key to transformation is not necessarily work, getting stuff out of our lives. The actual key to transformation is putting the right stuff into our lives. And as we put the gospel, as we put God's truth, as we put who he is into our lives and that interacts with what's in our lives, it actually pushes out that which is not of him. And so as we go throughout this series called Core in Ephesians, we're going to be looking at some of the core truths of the gospel of what we believe as followers of Jesus. We said the Apostles' Creed earlier. We're going to be looking at, okay, how does that push out the stuff that needs to be kind of displaced in our lives? How are our lives made new? Ephesians is actually a pretty robust, thick book theologically. John Mackey, he was former president of Princeton Theological Seminary. Here's a couple things he said about the book of Ephesians, even though it's maybe challenging or difficult or heavy. He says, I saw a new world when I looked at Ephesians. Everything was new. I had a new outlook, new experiences, new attitudes to other people. I loved God. Jesus Christ became the center of everything. I had been quickened. I was really alive. Do you hear he's saying, as I look through Ephesians, it poured water into my life. It poured the water of God's truth into who I was and actually like pushed out some stuff. I became a little bit more like him. He says, here's the distilled essence of the Christian religion, the most authoritative and most consummate compendium of our holy Christian faith. He says, this letter is pure music. What we read here is the truth that sings, doctrine set to music. And so particularly in the first section of Ephesians chapter 1, it's heavy theologically. It's not just fluffy stuff. But my prayer is that it would actually sing to us, that it wouldn't be just dusty, mundane, theological truths, but that the truth of God would cause our spirits to come alive, that it would sing to us and fill our souls with the music of God, because that's literally how transformation happens. As the Apostle Paul proclaimed, God's order in a society is marked by a process of of social disintegration. He said Ephesians today is the most contemporary of the books in the Bible. It promises community in a world of disunity, reconciliation in a place of alienation, and peace instead of war. Another little question I can ask you to respond to. This won't be answered by engineers. This will be answered by English folks. Uh, Who's an English person out there? You don't necessarily have to teach English. Who knows the difference between the indicative mood and the subjunctive mood? Anybody can help me out with that? Indicative mood, subjunctive mood. Man, if you're like, do they even teach this anymore? I don't know. I I remembered the words when I read them, but I don't even know if they teach that stuff anymore. I don't know what they do. Uh, Who can tell me what's the difference between indicative mood and subjunctive mood? (laughs) 
Come on, man. What's that? We don't, they don't teach that anymore? Sandra, do you know? Okay. Yep, oh, good. Um, I actually messed up. Indicative mood and imperative mood. So, <laughs> like, yeah, so I'm the one who messed up. <laughs> yeah, it's, things are normal. My mistake. So, what's the difference between indicative mood? What did I get subjunctive from? I know it is, yeah, but you're right. You're, you're right on target there. So, what's the difference between indicative mood and imperative mood? Where did the, okay, imperative, who wants imperative mood? Yeah, awesome. So indicative mood, did, did people actually learn this today? Is that a thing or is this like date me? Probably dates me. Um, so indicative mood states a fact. It states something that just is. Imperative mood states something that should be, some kind of command. In other words, if I said this, if I said it's chilly outside, that's indicative mood. It simply says something that is. It's truthful that it's chilly outside this morning. If I said wear a coat, that's imperative mode. It tells you to do something in response in the indicative mood that's chilly outside. Ephesians works in a pretty significant way. The letter contains 41 imperative verbs. So 41 times the book of Ephesians says, hey, do this. But you know what's interesting? 40 of those 41 imperatives only happen in chapters 4 through 6. So in chapters 1 through 3, Paul only tells us to do something once. Lots of times when we speak as teachers or pastors, it's so important to tell your congregation or tell your listeners, wherever you speak, what to do. What's the action item? That's incredibly important. But what Paul is realizing is this. He's less concerned about somehow quickly our lives being transformed by changing our behavior and instead, Paul understands that you can probably change your behavior with enough willpower. You might eventually get burned out. You might change your behavior with sort of enough counsel or advice or support from others. But Paul understands the importance that genuine transformation is not simply responding to a bunch of new imperatives. Genuine transformation is actually responding to simple factual stuff that's true about who you are and God's relationship to you. You are changed not by just going and do things, although in chapters 4 through 6, there's 40-some imperatives. But in chapters 1 through 3, Paul walks little by little as to simply what's true. And most of us actually minimize the importance of that in the transformation of our own lives. Most of us have this perspective, man, like I know what's true, but it's somehow it doesn't work. I know what's true, let's move on. I know what's true, tell me the stuff that really is going to work. 
And Paul says, like, like, time out. In chapters one through three, Paul simply says, here's what's truth. There's actually only one imperative in, verse, in chapters one through three. And you know what it is? <laughs> the only imperative Paul mentions in the first three chapters of Ephesians is the imperative, remember. It's the only imperative. It's the only command. It's the only call to action he gives us in one through three. It's in chapter two, verses 11 and 12. I'll just read it quickly. He says, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth are and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. Remember at that time you were separate from Christ. He says, the only thing that I want you to do in the first three chapters is remember who you weren't. Remember that you're not that person. In other words, the only thing he tells us to do in chapters one through three is to remember what's no longer true about who we are. It's the only thing he asks us to do. Of the 197 verbs in chapters four through six, more than 20% of them are commands to his readers. So Paul is concerned about action. Paul is concerned about the transformation being expressed in our daily lives. But more than that, Paul wants the truth to permeate our souls, to fill our beings, not just our brains, so that we truly experience his transformation. One of the keys to the book we looked at last week is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what it says. And I just, I love this verse. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Two things you want to get your heads wrapped around in this series. Number one, and it, kind of the first one is last, last one's first. Number one, you are, as a follower of Jesus, in Christ. I realize, by the way, we have tons of people here, some watching online. So some of you are still on a journey. Some of you are still pursuing. Some of you are still kind of like figuring it out. You're welcome. In, and I hope this conversation helps to maybe open your eyes to what it actually looks like to be a follower of Jesus. That, yeah, it's hard. And, and you'll see failures in all of our lives. But this is something that, that's our desire to, to be. This is something that we pursue. So there's two things that you got to remember. Number one, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are in Christ. We talked about that last week a little bit. We'll talk about that more in the future. You're in Christ, in Christ, in him or in whom. That occurs 11 times in the Greek text in verses 3 through 14 alone. 11 times in Christ, in him, in whom. Friends, that's hugely important. We said last week, that means that the truth of who Jesus is, is the environment in which we do life. It's not just part of our brains. It's something that fills our beings. It's not something simply that we memorize and stick in our brains. It's something that fills our beings. And as the truth of who God is fills our beings, it pushes other stuff out. We are in Christ. Secondly, What's the other in in that verse? He says they're in Ephesus. And so every one of us has sort of two things at once that we're living. You are in Christ, 
but you don't just sort of like float around in this world. You're actually also in another environment. I live in Pittstown. Maybe some of you live in Flemington. Maybe some of you live in Phillipsburg. Maybe some of you live in Highbridge. You are in Christ, but you don't just live a spiritual floaty life. Uh, The world doesn't need any more spiritual, super spiritual, floaty Christians. They need people who are in Christ, but also in the environment where God has placed you. You are in Christ and in a classroom. You are in Christ and in an office building. You are in Christ and in ShopRite. You are in Christ and in Walmart. You are in Christ You're in your home. You're in Christ, and you're in your dining room. You're in Christ, and you're in your living room. And so the in Christness of you is everywhere else that you are. So that's a theme of Ephesians. You are in Christ, but you're also where God has placed you in this world geographically, in your relationships, in your activities. You are in Christ and in Flemington. They were in Christ and in Ephesus. We already sang some songs this morning, and right out of the chute, Paul mentions Trinitarian theology of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He says, you live in this world that's the swirl of activity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not a mundane world. It's not a world of inaction. Instead, it's a world packed with the reality and brimming with the energy of the Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not mundane. You won't fall asleep. You're not going to get bored. It's swirling with the energy, the divine dynamic of Father, Son, Holy Spirit being at work. Throughout the book, and even in these next few verses in 3 through 14, he says there's three perspectives on time. God is at work in the eternity past. Even before the world began, God is at work. He says God is at work in the very moment of your present life. In this very moment, right now, God is at work. In this very moment, the thought that you're thinking at this very moment God is at work. He's also at work in eternity future, at the end of history. So his Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he's at work in past, present, and future. Verses 3 through 14, there's number of phases. He's blessed us. He's predestined us. He made known to us. This God who's at work in past, present, and future is also coming at us. He's not far off. He's not distant. He's not in outer space. He's constantly knocking on our door, constantly coming at us. Well, Diane is going to come up, and she's going to read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And uh, if you're an English major, again, maybe this will make you curl your toes a little bit. Uh, Verses 3 through 14 are in the original language, actually one complete run-on sentence. It really is. I mean, it's a full paragraph. We're not going to deal with, actually, we're going to take three weeks to go through uh, these verses. And I think, um, yeah, three weeks to go through these verses. So we're not going to cover all of these verses this morning. But I didn't want to break up Paul mid-sentence. And so she's going to read 
all verses 3 through 14. Just as you listen to this in the English language, obviously it's broken up into different sentences so we can digest a little bit better. But this is all literally one giant sentence of Paul exploding in his heart with praise to God, whose Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who's at work in past, present, and future, and who is brimming with activity as he engages us as human beings. So, Diana, if you could read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Okay, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to put in effect with the times, when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Thank you, Diana. Uh, we're just going to go through this text, make some highlights. Uh, verse 3 says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Number one, just real quick before we read on here, that word praise there in the beginning could actually be translated blessed be. Three times in verse 3, Paul explodes with this idea of blessing. So he says, blessed be or praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, there it is second time, in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Right out of the chute, friends, we often talk about this here at Southridge, right at, like tone matters. Paul says, the first thing that comes to my mind is not how terrible the world is, how it's going to hell in a handbasket, not how disappointed he is with other followers of Jesus. Paul, and his, his soul explodes with authentic praise to God for this God who is also blessing us. Quick question, is that kind of the fundamental paradigm with which you view God. Uh, if you kind of know me, I'm not necessarily the effervescent, bubbling personality kind of guy. Um, I often struggle with sort of negative thoughts, negative thinking, cynicism, pessimism, that kind of thing. 
And to be honest with you, probably in the last one or two years, I've needed to sort of come to terms with how much like my life actually needs to repent of just sort of negativity that exists in me. Like it doesn't belong to the life of God. Paul explodes. He says, when I think of who God is, my life explodes with praise to him. He's blessing us. Now, quite honestly, when we think of that word blessing, it sounds kind of soft, squishy, impotent. Sounds incapable, ineffective, inept, powerless, and weak. When we hear that word blessing, it kind of, we kind of connect that to church world, right? Or maybe you have a grandmother somewhere and she grabbed your little cheeks and she's like, ah, like, bless you. And you're like, ah, like, the last thing you need is blessing schmessings. Like, like, blessings are fluffy. Blessings have no weight. Blessings are nice, pretty pink language. They really have no substance. Not so with scripture. This is real. This is vibrant. This is concrete. This makes a difference. It matters. Actually, we had a funeral here yesterday, memorial service, and somebody gave a a eulogy. Uh, The word eulogy is actually from that same Greek word, bless. It's it's literally um, eulageia. Eulageia is the Greek word there. So when somebody speaks at memorial service, they praise, they bless. They highlight the celebration of the person who has passed. Listen, friends. Our world and your life deeply longs for blessing. Here's the deal. Your life refuses to be a vacuum for blessing. Every one of us in this room, every one of you online, are blessing pursuers. When we went through the book of Revelation, we talked about worship. We said the question is not whether or not you worship. It's not if you worship. The question is what you worship. The question is not if you're seeking blessing. The question is where are you seeking blessing? Your life is a vacuum starving for blessing. Every one of you. You might fill that vacuum with the blessings of corporate success. You might fill that vacuum with pursued blessings of pornography. Something that makes your soul alive. You might actually fill that vacuum by criticizing and demeaning others. And that's where you seek blessing in your life. That's where you seek affirmation. That's where you seek the sense that I'm okay. You are, your life is a blessing vacuum. It's looking for something to fulfill it. Some of you might fill it with the high of the Amazon truck showing up in front of your house. The blessing of new clothes, the blessing of entertainment. And all of those things are good, but they don't necessarily fill the vacuum in your life of the kind of blessing that you need. And Paul says, the only way for that to happen is for you to receive the substantive blessing of God. According to the Associated Press, nearly 50,000 people committed suicide last year. Friends, that shouldn't make us weep. It's an absolute record. 
in terms of the raw numbers. It's the highest rate in nearly a century. Some have asked, why in the most prosperous times in which we live, and that's historically true, why in the most prosperous times in which we live do so many think that they would be better off dead? Maybe some of you struggle with thoughts of taking your life. If you do, we certainly encourage you to get help for that. We'd be glad to point you to resources here at the church. It's a lot of emotional stuff, mental stuff. There's a lot of things that contribute to that. Where one being physical, mental, spiritual, all of that contributes to that. But at least part of it is a vacuum of blessing in our culture. We are desperately seeking to be blessed. We are desperately seeking to matter. We are desperately seeking to be filled with some kind of life. Someone has said increasingly secular culture removes any real conviction that we have that it's even possible to share in the goodness of God. We have desires. We have things that we love. We desire for relationship. We're not human brains. We're human beings. Paul says they are spiritual blessings, meaning that it's not simply something that we can mechanically engineer. Instead, they come through the gift of God's spirit. They're in the heavenly realms. That doesn't mean that they're kind of useless because they're up there and it's puffy white clouds somewhere. But he says they're heavenly realms in the sense that they're protected from the ravages of circumstances here in our lives. When he says heavenly realms, he does not mean they're disconnected from this life. He does not mean it's simply something that we'll experience in the future. No, Paul is saying we're blessed with blessings in the heavenly realms in a way that nothing that we experience in here can impact the depth and reality of the goodness that flows from God and who he is. Verse 4, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, it kind of saddens me, quite honestly, how quickly things get mired down into predestination, election, and free choice. And we're not going to dive into that stuff. But what I do want to say is this. The fact that any of us belong to God is a testimony to his grace. That he chose, even before creation, for people to belong to him. And he's not necessarily even talking about individuals here, this individual, that individual, but not that other one. He's not even going there. He's saying that before creation, God chose to redeem and bring people to himself through the person of Christ, that Christ was going to be God's means of people once again belonging to him. Maybe just kind of like one quick note on that. Read an article recently that simply said, why we get bored of what we can control. One of the challenges in our world, friends, one of the challenges is that we're a bored people. And the reason that we're bored is because we don't accept mystery. The reason that we're bored is because we need an explanation for everything. The reason that we're bored is because we have access to things on our phone 
We can control life. We can control the temperature in a room. We can control where we are on a planet. We can control what information we know. We're in control, but control makes us bored people. Our imaginations need to come alive with the beauty of God's truth. This guy wrote this, well, he lived actually all the way back between 1800 and 1900. He wrote this in 1917. He said, we grow weary of things which we master. When we have mastered the contents of a book, it no longer interests us. We put it away on the shelf. When a man is working at an invention and completes it, he turns from that to something else. It is said of Thomas Edison that he spent years of devotion to the problem of producing the electric light, but that when he had mastered it, he walked around a square to avoid passing one. I do not know whether or not that's true, but in any event, it is true to human nature. We turn away from the thing that we have mastered, but we can never master Christ. Listen, friends. We live in a world where we have to be in control. We see ourselves as masters. That's why we consume information. We want to master things. Listen, you will never master God. And the reason that we get bored with God, the reason that we get bored with his blessings is precisely because we think that we have him mastered. Ephesians does not invite you in to stuffy theology. It invites you in to the mystery of living with a dynamic, energized God who exists in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's got to enliven your heart. It's got to make your soul explode. If you need to be in control, if you've got to have every little last thing to find, God will become boring. It bothers me significantly that we live in this world that's just brimming with beauty and opportunity, and yet we're a bored people. We have access to more things than we've ever had access to before, but we're a bored people. We're a boring people. Why? Because mystery has left our souls. In Ephesians 1, Paul invites us in to the mystery of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The swirl of a divine activity. We live in this story from even before creation of God. If you're here this morning, if you have faith in Christ, you're chosen. Do you realize that? Like God has desired for you to belong to his community of redeemed. It's mind-blowing. Verses 6 and 7, in love... He predestined us. We often kind of contrast love and predestination. Again, I don't know how all of those things work. Yes, there's some mystery, but what I do know is this, it's in love. The God of the universe is pulsating and brimming and dancing with love. He predestined us for the adoption of sonship through Jesus Christ. Yesterday, the memorial service that we had right here, the, the daughter had been adopted And I actually want to ask her for a little transcript of the comments that she made. But when she was making comments about her parents, she talked about how her parents gave her life. She had physical life. But when she was adopted, 
I think it was from Portugal, I forget where it was from. When she was what, to the praise of his glorious grace or with his pleasure and will, that word pleasure just like stuck out to me. And I texted him this week and said like, hey, what do you guys communicate to your employees about this idea of pleasure? He said it communicates honor and dignity and respect. Something we try to convey to every person. We try to enhance how a guest feels about their experience. But he says the real magic of, of my pleasure, when Chick-fil-A folks say that to you, my pleasure, instead of saying you're welcome, they say my pleasure. He said it's got to come from the heart. It's got to express the true attitude of actually delighting and serving. Listen, friends, do you realize you have a God who delights to serve you? God delights to love you. Has that become, has that truth soaked? My guess is every single one of us in this room have only touched the surface of what it means to know that God delights in loving you. Some of you feel unlovable. Some of you have been told you're not lovable. God takes pleasure in loving you. God takes pleasure in redeeming your life. God takes pleasure and great delight. He's thrilled to death that you're his. To the praise of his glorious grace. It's beautiful. It's delightful. Again, this isn't just brain stuff for Paul. There's beauty. There's delight. It's enlivening. It's sparkling. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he's given us in the one he loves. Verses 8 and 9, with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Again, that word pleasure shows up. Notice, it says, with all wisdom and understanding. Uh, I don't know about you, but some of you ever kind of get into a job in your house and you're like, oh man, I should have never gotten into that. Uh, the other week I was actually, my porch posts need to be painted in the front. So I was out there kind of going to wire brush and sand them a little bit to repaint them. When I did that, oh, they're, like they're rotten at the bottom. Well, they got to be replaced. Well, when they're rotten, then this railing's not right. And like, be, like before long, like, oh man, I didn't see all that coming. If I would have known that, I shouldn't have even begun the project. Listen, God is delighted that he began the project. God isn't like, oh my goodness, I didn't see this person come along. Like if I would have known the job was going to lead there, I might not have gone here. No, God sees perfectly the mess of our world. God sees perfectly the mess of the 21st century. God sees perfectly the mess of your life. And in his wisdom, he still delights and he still has pleasure that you belong to him. He made known to us the mystery of his will. Mystery is something to us that's unknown. It's actually, in Scripture, something that is known that we kind of more fully understand to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. We'll get into some of these things in the following weeks. Like I said, we're going to spend three weeks in these section of verses. I'm going to ask our team to come out, and, and as they do, I want you to think through, not the whole jar, but just what are one or two things 
that are in your jar that need to be pushed out by the goodness and love of God. Some of you let thoughts of self-hatred or inadequacy overpower you. When's the last time you said, you know what, not that, okay, I've got to stop thinking that, but maybe just for 15 seconds this week, just 15, just start, start small. For 15 seconds, what would it look like for you to stop that tape that you're nobody, that you hate yourself, that you're a failure, that you're inadequate, that you're a reject? What would it look like for just 15 seconds? You can't work on stopping that thought. You can't work on pulling air out. All you can do is pour something else in. And when you pour something else in, what's there will come out. So what would, what would happen is just for 15 seconds, maybe 30, if you took focused thoughts and actually delighted in the beauty of God, delighted that he loves you, delighted that his grace and mercy is toward you, what would that look like? What's going to animate your life this week? What's going to cause you to be blessed this week? Is it working for success? Is it porn? Like, what's going what's to animate? It's going to be a new shopping experience. What's going to animate you? What's going to bless you? Are the blessings of God just as light as snowflakes and meaningless? Or the blessings of God that he loves you, that he's chosen you in Christ Jesus. As you fill your vase with that, might that just push out some of the bitterness, some of the seeking of a high somewhere else? What would happen if we allowed the love of God expressed to us in Christ Jesus actually have weight in our lives rather than being simply brushed quickly away. Let's stand. We're going to sing the song, Oh, How He Loves. And man, let's sing this with a sense of, God, fill our souls, fill our beings with your love. Not just factual stuff. Fill our beings with your love. Fill our vases with your love. Let's sing this and invite God to do that.
Thank you that your love is toward us. Before the creation of the world, you chose us to belong to you. And it was your pleasure, it was your pleasure to do so. God, here in this moment, we say thank you. And it's our pleasure to belong to you. Fill our hearts, our souls, and our beings with the energy, the goodness, and the beauty of your love and grace. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and everyone who agreed said, amen. Our team down here is our prayer team. would love to pray for you. God bless. May you be blessed this week.